Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we find out how Finland has managed to tackle homelessness and succeed through a national housing first strategy. It sounds kind of easy. It's not. But can it work elsewhere? Could it work in Canada? We head to Rome to find out more about a mystery that has captivated Italy for four decades now. The disappearance in 1983 of 15-year-old Emanuela Orlandi, the so-called Vatican girl, and ask what a new investigation by the Vatican's chief prosecutor could reveal. But first, we are no closer to understanding why a 51-year-old bus driver allegedly drove a city bus into a daycare near Montreal on Wednesday, killing two young kids and injuring several others. We speak to the head of an organization that brings together parents who've lost children about trying to cope with such an unimaginable tragedy. Trying to cope with such an unimaginable tragedy. And let's start in Laval, north of Montreal, that suburb, a suburb I know well, actually, because St. Rose Laval is not far from where my parents moved when I was in my late teens. So I know that community. I know where that bus went into that daycare center. Um, I've been there. I've been to that church where a vigil was held tonight. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau was there. Community members were there uh, to commemorate the victims of that fatal daycare bus crash that killed two kids and injured six others. Again, the PM was there uh, with Laval's mayor as well. Outside the church near the crash site, he says, this is a moment to remember to come together and to support one another we think about them as they as they struggle with what they had to do and what they had to see we think about all the people who rushed to help we think of the community right now here in Laval and across the province across the country pulling together to be there for each other and to support through the days and months and years of grieving and healing to come all we can do is be there for each other and that's that's what people in this community that's what people across the country do the prime minister at a candlelight vigil tonight in laval we had a bit of good news today health officials in montreal say two of the injured six kids two of the six have been released from hospital the other four are expected to survive their injuries quebec's premier francois legault was also at the site today here's what he had to say of course it's tough because we're talking about children and there's nothing more important than children uh, personally uh, most stress I can have in my life is to make sure my children are happy. A 51-year-old transit driver has been charged with two counts of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and aggravated assault. Witnesses say Pierre Ni Saint-Amand was unclothed and screaming incoherently after emerging from that bus yesterday. We don't know much about him. He does not have a criminal record, police said. He has worked for the Laval Transit Agency for about a decade with no incidents of note on his file. The motive if there ever could be an understanding of one, and the circumstances of the crash remain unknown to police today. They still investigate. While they do that, though, um, the rest of us, I guess, are just trying to make sense of the senseless. It is the parents of those killed and those injured that are in the thoughts of everyone tonight. For them, life will have changed in an instant yesterday. And that's something that parents, other parents who have lost a child, will at least have some understanding of. And thanks to one organization, they are able to come together in this country and others around the world. They are able to come together and guide each other through these incomprehensibly difficult times. Andy Bond is the president of the Compassionate Friends of Canada, which offers friendship, understanding, grief education, and hope for the future to all families who are grieving the death of a child at any age, from any cause. And Andy Bond joins me now 
from Ottawa. Andy, thank you. Well, you're very welcome, Ben, and thank you for your interest. These tragedies must hit, they, they hit close to home for everyone. Uh, but for those who've lost children, it must always hit a little bit closer. Uh, that is indeed the case. Uh, even though somebody may have suffered uh, a loss, perhaps of any kind, not just the loss of a child, but a, a parent or a spouse, um, when they see another loss coming up, they can often re-trigger some of those uh, early painful feelings that they had as well. So uh, it can be bad for everybody all around. Tell me a bit about what your group does. Uh, we provide support to parents who are grieving the death of a child from any age, uh, from adult to infant, infant to adult, and uh, at any time and from any cause. Um, basically, uh, we're a peer support uh, volunteer organization. It is an international group. There, there are chapters in over 30 countries around the world, and it started in the UK back in 1969. And the genesis was when a, a hospital minister uh, met two two sets of parents whose sons had both recently been killed in motorcycle accidents. And he found that the uh, the bond that they shared was more helpful to them than what he was, thought he was able to provide. And that was really the first occasion where um, parents helping parents uh, became the theme of this support. So the, the idea behind Compassionate Friends is that the best person to understand what you go through when you uh, experience the death of a child is somebody who has had that same experience. Uh, and so our, our tagline is uh, we need not walk alone. And the whole idea is that uh, people who have uh, recently had a loss or experienced the death of a child uh, can meet people who are a little further on in their grief journey and see that they have survived this terrible incident. Uh, they're actually apparently behaving and living and breathing and talking in a fairly normal way and give them, gives them hope for a future they can get through this themselves. On the other side, uh, it does show that the people who are further along in their grief when they meet uh, newly bereaved parents, they can recall how they felt at that particular time, and they can see how far they've come as well. So it helps both both sides there to sort of see um, what happens immediately and what happens in the longer term as well. And that is basically the, the mission of Compassionate Friends. So it's managed, run by bereaved parents for bereaved parents. And you too found your way to this group um, through bereavement. Uh, exactly. Yes. Uh, our our son, who was 20 years old, was away at university. He's just starting his second year. Uh, and he died after a very fast uh, bicycle ride to a friend's house. Uh, and after six months, the autopsy said uh, it was probably a cardiomyopathy, but we don't know what caused it. So uh, we lived in a lot of uncertainty for, for quite a while while that's um, trying to figure out what exactly the cause was. Uh, but as part of that uh, grieving process, we did lots of research and lots of reading and came across the Compassionate Friends. Um, at the time, uh, the main office was in Winnipeg, which was the, the founding chapter in Canada. And so we were in touch with them, and we became on their newsletter list. Uh, and that was a very, very helpful to help us through those initial uh, initial few years. We then attended a conference in Kelowna, BC, uh, where we found that uh, Winnipeg wasn't the only chapter in Canada. And so we came back to Ottawa and founded the Ottawa chapter in 1999, and looked after that for 20 years and then handed it off a couple of years ago to another couple. And we've now taken on the role in, in, as president uh, and on the board as well. So, um, yes, we've been through that whole journey. and We brought a number of parents along with us uh, in terms of uh, helping them and seeing their grief journeys. And, and the, it's given us, the, I guess, the satisfaction of turning a tragic event into something positive. Initially, it must be such, you must feel such a, a loss, and lost would be the word I wanted to use, the loss of being lost because of a loss, and with so few people to turn to and to talk to, you must feel very alone when that happens. Uh, that is indeed the case in many cases. 
people generally just do not either, unless they've had the same experience or a similar experience, they just do not appreciate what the bereaved parent is going through uh, when their child dies. And they can be helpful or think they can be helpful by, you know, saying, well, you'll get over it soon or it's not as bad as all that and think it's going to take just a little time to to get back to normal. Uh, but the reality of it is that uh, it's, uh, it's a very traumatic shock. It's not over in a week. It's not over in a month. It takes uh, usually several years to actually go through the complete grieving process. And at the end of that, uh, you end up a, a, a different person. One of the hardest thoughts that people find to understand is that there's no such thing as closure. It never actually goes away and you go back to where you were before. The death of that child becomes a part of who you are today. And that goes on with you for the rest of your life. Uh, and the, the grief journey from the before loss to the after loss uh, can take several years. And at the end of it, you end up a different person. The analogy that we use is the butterfly coming out of the cocoon. They start out as a caterpillar and, and a larva, and they go through that whole metamorphosis and end up with a completely different uh, um, animal coming out of it. Um, and a very similar analogy for the, the bereaved parent going through the grieving process. When they finally come out, they're a different person, but their loss is definitely part of who they are in the future. And I would imagine that that there's always a sense of, of um, a sense of reluctance to move on sometimes because of one would one would, I can imagine one would feel guilty about leading a no, sort of living life again when someone so important is gone. Yes, uh, that that becomes a very important part of the uh, the support process that the other parents can bring. Obviously, in the part of the parent who has just whose child has just died, uh, they think, well, if I try and carry on living without this child now, um, I'm not honouring their life, I'm not honouring their, their their history, their memory. Uh, whereas, in fact, over time, it becomes a little easier to accept that they have now gone and life does need to move on. Some people find they get stuck in that grief and they just find it very hard to sort of move forward. Um, others, with the help of other parents, can sort of recognize that there is life after this grief and, and it is time to move on. But it is a challenging point to uh, to get to the point of essentially letting go uh, and saying, well, I've, you know, that, that child had their life with me. We enjoyed it. We had some good positive memories. Um, and now I, I feel able. Unfortunately, that takes usually takes far longer than most people appreciate. Andy, when it comes to, and you mentioned this earlier, uh, you, you speak to parents who've lost children in many different ways. Um, you mentioned off the off the top that it was started in the UK when a minister uh, met two groups, two sets of parents who had lost children in motorcycle accidents. Mm -hmm. is, is there a difference? Is there a difference to parents depending on on the sort of event that has caused the death? When we look at something as as horrific as this, what's happened in Montreal? There really isn't a, a difference in the loss. Uh, the, the net result is that the parent uh, suddenly does not have the child anymore. Um, in some cases, the death may be not unexpected. It might be a long-term illness, for example, or it could be a sudden accident, uh, such as a motorcycle accident or an automobile accident, or even in the case of the, the incident in Montreal, um, a tragic act by another person that's caused these children to die. Um, so the, the net, the net effect is the same. Uh, but in some cases, it may be moderated by whether death is expected or not or anticipated. But nonetheless, once the child dies, it still becomes a tragic event. How do you get past the the idea that you weren't there to protect them? That is always one of the uh, uh, the challenging points. When Elizabeth Cooper Ross wrote about the stages of grief, uh, she didn't intend them to be kind of step one, step two, step three, and it more like more likely goes you know one, three, four, two, five, three, two, one, round and back and down. So getting moving forward and getting past that, it was my fault. There's always that sense of what could I have done 
that would have made a difference. And in most cases, unless there is a special case of maybe some neglect or avert action that happened, uh, there really is nothing that the parent could have done to prevent that accident or that, that death. And it really is coming to terms with that that takes the time. Uh, this is, again, where parents that have traveled the same uh, grief journey, the same path, can understand where the new parent is coming from uh, and can, again, provide them that support and hope that they can get through it, that it really isn't anything they could have present, prevented. Uh, there's nothing they could have done. It's just, just the way that life works out occasionally, uh, in, in, in often too frequently. But really getting over that uh, responsibility and the, the that it was my fault is a very important part of uh, getting through that healing journey, the grieving journey. Friends and acquaintances and family, I suspect, would be walking on eggshells. What can people around do to make that journey easier? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're very correct in, in using that term. There's often several different reactions. Uh, a very common one is that people don't want to speak to the bereaved parent because they think it might happen to them. Uh, it's one of these unspeakable situations where people feel like, I don't want to associate you with you or mention your child uh, and just sort of carry on as though everything was normal. Um, on the other hand, there are some parents that do appreciate that uh, the, the, the bereaved parent needs help and support. And the best things that uh, anybody can do is really to, first of all, acknowledge the loss. Uh, Don't downplay it. Uh, Recognize that wherever that parent is in their own grieving, um, that's a valid place to be for them. Uh, So acknowledge the loss and then just listen. Listen to what they have to say. Uh, Even say, I'm so sorry, I just don't know what to say, says a lot. It means you're there for them and you're listening to their story. And they can just talk. They can talk cogently, coherently. They can babble on in in a flood of tears as long as you're just there to to listen to them and hear, that's the most important thing you can do for them in the early days. Later on in the grieving journey, as they become a little more stable, you can perhaps invite them out for a walk or something to get some fresh air, uh, go out in the countryside. Uh, uh, Social stuff is not usually very easy to get back into, but it does need to happen eventually. But again, just uh, it's really being there and saying, wherever you are, I'm, I'm here to help you. And just let them understand what, what you should not do or what people should not do is to say, do this or you must do that or get over it those are not helpful pillars of advice yeah you mentioned earlier that uh i guess it's a word we use a lot in the media right closure yeah. um and closure. i've always suspected yes. that it doesn't exist <laughs> uh that's true um there's uh, there's a whole article that we we hand out as part of our training material for our facilitators it's called the myth of closure and it really just says that uh you, you don't close anything um it, it doesn't go away it doesn't change the fact of the death it just says that at some point um, it becomes a part of the new you uh, and getting used to that and being able to identify yourself as now I'm a bereaved parent. I'm not just a happy father or mother or, or whoever it might have been uh, for the child before. I'm now a bereaved parent in this situation and coming to terms with that, being comfortable with that and moving on with your new life. Andy Bond, I, 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 my condolences for your loss as well. And thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, man. Let's head to Finland now, a place that is notoriously dark in the winter, by the way, um, where they've really taken some huge efforts to try to tackle homelessness over the past three decades or so. For them, homelessness became something that was simply not an option. Um, They decided to address their problem beginning with a comprehensive strategy to provide immediate permanent housing for those who needed it. And as a result, and with the help of a national strategy in 2008 called Housing First, a a philosophy, a policy, 
um, they've been able to become a leading example of how to drastically reduce homelessness around the world. And this is a question that so many cities, so many jurisdictions are looking at now. How do you solve this issue? How do you make it work? Well, it turns out commitment is one of the things that helps. Um, and also investment, right? Y Foundation is a Finland nonprofit. It develops housing and purchases existing housing and then leases, out, leases it out to people who would otherwise be homeless. Um, and part of the issue here with the housing first thing is that they've converted shelters. They've converted shelters into convertible, into comfortable, permanent homes um, with staff on hand to support those with addictions or in need of life skills and training and work placement. Now, we have examples of that here too. In fact, there's one right across the street from where I'm sitting right now. But these are small, small projects. These are not the kinds of things we see everywhere. I know that we're ramping up on some of these ideas, uh, but Finland seems to offer something of a guide to all jurisdictions trying to figure out how this could work. And one of the big things that they sell this on is that it saves money. They estimate they save about $22,000 a year for every homeless person in properly supported housing, considering the cost that would be otherwise incurred through things like emergency shelter, emergency health care, social services, criminal justice involvement, and so forth. So we thought, let's try and find out more about this, because this does sound like a fascinating idea and something that a lot of jurisdictions around Canada could be looking at. So joining me now from Helsinki is Juha Kalia. He's head of international affairs at the Y Foundation. Thanks for your time. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I mean, this is, I think, lots of countries, lots of cities around the world right now are, are struggling with what to do with, uh, with people who are unhoused, with housing shortages, with housing expense. Um, how bad was the problem in Finland back in the 80s when it was decided to do something different? Yeah, back in the 80s, 80s, there was over 20,000 homeless people in Finland. And then today the number is under 4,000. So there has been a positive progress since then. And of course, the game changer was 2008 when we implemented the Finnish Housing First model into action. Tell me a bit, a bit about the housing first, because there is a there is a, a theory, a philosophy behind how to help people who don't have, you know, who are, who are unhoused, so to speak. How, what is it? How does it work? Well, housing first is quite simple and straightforward. So before people can handle any other issues, they need a home of their own. So they can have a place where they can feel safe and then they have a permanent rental agreement and so on. And after that, it's much easier to take care of the other challenges, the possibility of having mental health issues or substance abuse issues or anything like that. So it's much easier when you have a home of your own. Of course, that sounds simple. I think lots of mm. different areas around the world, even where I am here in Victoria, have tried something like that. It's difficult, seems to be difficult to achieve. How did it work? And by work, I mean, how did it actually succeed in Finland? Well, in Finland, uh, we see housing first. We don't follow the original USA model, you know, blindly in a way. So we have implemented our own model, which works in our own society. So, for example, what the city of Helsinki did was that they renovate most of the shelters and temporary accommodation into these housing first units, which means that there can be anything up to 20, 20 to 100 apartments in one building. And then there is support on site 24-7 if needed for the people. But, you know, the apartments are just normal apartments with kitchen and bathroom and people can live there as long as they want. But I think that was one of the reasons that we have succeeded, that we have not limited our housing options just for scattered housing around the city, but we also have these other options for people. 
Yeah, and and the Y Foundation was part of that, right? What you do too. How how do you because you do select the buildings, right? I mean, you actually own the buildings and then lease them out. Is that right? How how does it work for for within the structure? Because again, I get the impression that lots of different attempts have been made to do something similar in Canada, but it's often patchwork. It's not it's not concentrated. Yeah, well, Y Foundation, we built built normal affordable social housing, and then we also built these housing first units, and then always together, you know, in in cooperation with the municipalities who who need the apartments and, and the units, and and yeah, for for the Y Foundation, I think the main main thing has been that there has been also a strong political win will in Finland regarding ending homelessness and doing it by housing first, because that also has guaranteed that, for example, Y Foundation we can get from the state organization are really long-term low-interest loans, which enables us to build actually affordable housing for people. And, and that has been one of the things in Finland as well. At the moment, we have almost 19,000 apartments around Finland, and we are the fourth largest landlord and totally non-profit organization. And, and that's, all, of course, a big deal. Yeah. When it comes to the actual agreement, so how does it work if you if someone is unhoused or they find themselves homeless? How does it work when it comes to entering that system? Because I know, of course, part of the problem here is that when people lose their homes, they, they, they end up in a, in a system that can be very hard to get out of. Yeah, well, of course, before people end up on the streets, there is preventive work that tries to do everything on their power to, to know, you know, help people before they lose their apartment. But of course, evictions happen, and if people end up being homeless, and then they have immediate access to social worker and social services, which then can help help to see that what is the situation, why they have lost the apartment, is there some issues that they might need the support, and that's how it goes. So it's quite straightforward system, and and. Of course, sometimes it happens that there is not housing available straight away, but then then you can wait a little while in a temporary accommodation before before they find a rental apartment for you. How does it work for the rentals for the for the individual tenants themselves? So presumably someone is is unhoused, then they then they're given shelter. Their their shelter is found or or given to them. How do they then? Is there a contract? How does it work? Yeah, yeah, they have a contract, so they made a permanent rental agreement, so they have home of their own after that, and then they pay the rent one way or another. Some people have some kind of pension that they can pay the rent, and if you don't have any income, then there is the social welfare benefits that that you are entitled, for example, housing allowance, and then the living allowance, which enables that you are able to pay the rent. And, and then it's your home, you have the same rights, same responsibilities as, as anyone else, and you know, as, as for me, example, when I live in rental apartment as well so it's quite straightforward and i think the best word to describe it is the word of normality they use the same services as anyone else regarding the social services and health services and they are entitled to the same benefits as anyone else so we don't make any difference regarding that is the are these still considered transition homes i mean oftentimes no. are you expecting no you're not expecting them to go out and sort of build back up and go back out and find something else bigger in the in the rental market or in this in the sale market no, no. The main thing is that it's it's permanent housing, and of course, if if people, you know, sometimes more than often, more than often, it happens. People find their way back into work life, for example, and they start to get salaries and so on. So, of course, in those situations, people sometimes tend to move out into somewhere else, or then they find a partner and they want to move in and they move into a bigger apartment and so on. But no one is forced to move out, so it's it's a home of their own as long as they pay the rent and don't cause too much disturbance for the neighborhood and and so on. 
How do you prevent, you know, often there's concerns about stigma and isolation for people who are coming, who might have mental health issues, what may have led them to become uh, homeless in the first place? How do you prevent that sort of isolation? The ghettoization used to be the word we would use. uh, But how do you prevent that from happening within those environments? Yeah, well, if we talk about the individual apartments in scattered sites, I think the main thing here is that we don't celebrate in a way in the building that, hey, there is this one rental apartment and the one who is living in this one, you know, he's, he or she is a former homeless person and so on. We try to make it as normal as possible so they can build, you know, normal relationship with the neighbors and the neighbors doesn't need to know that there has been some kind of problems or there are still some kind of challenges and problems within that person because they get support for that. And then, you know, as, as long as they don't cause too much disturbance in, in the building and, and they pay the rent, their normal is, isn't any problems. And when it comes to these housing first units where there can be, you know, up to a 100 apartment in the same building, there is a neighborhood work, of course. So if any neighbor neighbors or, or have any concerns or fears or they have, you know, see some kind of suspensive activities, there is always a phone number where they can call. So it's it's about openness and, and be truthful to the neighborhood what's happening as well. Uh, you had to, Tell me a bit about the, about the economic argument for this, because obviously there's an outlay of cash up front for these units that you have to either build, renovate, buy, and so forth. But where do you see the savings when it comes to not having the sorts of issues that homelessness often causes? Yeah, we have made study, studies in Finland and there are many studies around Europe and, and also in Canada and US that tells the same story basically. So for example, in Finland, we made the, made the study and, and, and one, one homeless person, if he or she lives on the streets or in an emergency shelter or temporary accommodation, they cost 40,000 euros per year per person. And if that same person is given a home and all the support services they need, the cost is 25,000 euros a year per person. So there are actually 15,000 euros savings per year per saving doing housing first instead of those people living on the streets or in the emergency shelters or, or temporary accommodation. And then all the savings comes because they have a home of their own. So they tend to not spend time on the streets anymore and, and they don't need to use the very, very expensive emergency health services, a lot less services from police side, uh, from the justice department and so on. So all these really expensive emergency services, they don't need to use those as much as they would use if they would live on the streets or in a temporary accommodation or shelter. So that's where the savings came from. And, and I, I think many studies have proved that, you know, the savings are there and it's usually anything between five to 15,000 in euros or dollars. We often look to Scandinavia and say, well, that's Scandinavia. It'll never work here. How easy or difficult would it be, do you think, for other jurisdictions to emulate or at least imitate what what has been done in, in Finland? Well, I think if it would be easy, many countries would have done it already, but it's a hard work. And I've said many times that, you know, in many countries, there are great you know, homelessness and housing first programs for many years to come from. But the actual part is to, to implement those those programs into action. And that's the hardest part. I would say that, you know, you cannot copy one model to a one country to another. So you, you can take the best bits and pieces that will work in your own context and in your own society and start working from there. But uh, I truly believe that with the housing first and the different implementations, you know, in Finland we have and in some other countries, it is totally possible to end homelessness elsewhere besides Scandinavia as well. And, and it, it takes hard work and it takes a lot of belief to change the whole system in a way to work in a whole whole other way that it has worked for the past 40, 50 years. And it takes a lot of courage from the politicians and decision makers. And at the moment, we are lack of it.
Yeah, when you look at other countries who are no doubt, I mean, all these countries understand the economic argument that you've just made, right? We already have healthcare systems that are struggling. Uh, certainly people who live on, you know, people who are who are on the streets are far more vulnerable and, and in far more need when it comes to using a lot of social services, uh, whether it be policing or healthcare. Where do you think the snag is? Where do you think the barriers are in other places, such as Canada, when it comes to trying to uh, copy what has been done in Finland? Well, I think one of the things is that, for example, in Canada, there has been a lot of pilot projects. So many different cities try how it works in a very small scale, 20 apartments or so. So I think what needs to be done is to just go all in in housing first and, and, and change the whole system, not just, you know, small part of the system, but the whole homelessness system to work towards the housing first and, and be brave enough to try different kind of solutions within the housing, because we know that there is a lack of affordable housing everywhere in the world. So I think there needs to be different kind of solutions regard housing. And, and in Finland, the housing first units, they have worked quite well. And, and, and in many countries, there is shared housing and so on. So I think you need to be, you know, bold enough to try different things within the housing part. What we have learned from the people who have come out from homelessness and, for example, live in these units, they said that it, it's a good thing that they also have options. They can choose between the scattered side and the units. And, and I think that makes all the difference for them as well. Well, Juha Kalia, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We all stream stuff, right? And every once in a while you land on something and think, wow, this is good. And I felt that way a little while ago when I watched something called Vatican Girl. It is about a story that I knew a bit about already because I'd obviously covered stories at the Vatican over my time abroad, been there, um, interviewed our next guest a few times on other issues. But it deals with the disappearance in June of 1983, of a 15-year-old girl named Emanuela Orlandi. Now, the reason why this became such an incredibly followed story is that Orlandi was known as the Vatican girl. Her family lived in Vatican City, where her father was employed as a lay employee in the papal household. Um, So when she went missing, she was immediately associated with all that goes on behind the walls of the Vatican, which of course sits right in the middle of Rome, but it is in many ways its own world with its own rules and its own rulers, obviously. The case has captivated Italy for four decades now. No one knows what happened to her, or at least no one's ever been able to figure out exactly what happened to her. Her disappearance has triggered a wide array of theories, some of them plausible, some of them far from it, countless theories. And as I mentioned, it is also the basis for a popular Netflix series called Vatican Girl. Emanuela was not an ordinary child. She was a Vatican girl. Her kidnappers want to swap her for Aja. The man who shot the Pope. Terrorism is just a decoy to divert attention. From some secret inside the Vatican. There you have it. Everyone believes, if you ask, everyone believes that all roads in this mystery lead back to the Vatican, do they? Well, 40 years later... Just last month, the Vatican announced they are going to reopen an investigation into the disappearance of Orlandi, saying all files, documents, reports, information, and testimonies connected to the case would be re-examined in order to clarify an array of questions and to, quote, leave no stone unturned. What could they find 40 years later? What wasn't revealed already? 
What can the investigation bring up? Will the truth ever be known, considering just how many theories there are out there about what happened to this 15-year-old as she left a music class to head home 40 years ago this June? Well, with more now on this, from Rome is John L. Allen Jr. He's a longtime Vatican correspondent. We've interviewed him. I've interviewed him before. He's now the editor of Crux, which is a website specializing in the coverage of the Vatican and the Catholic Church. He's also written 13 books on Vatican and Catholic affairs, and he joins me now. John, thank you. Hi there, Ben. Tell me about this case, because I don't know many Canadians other than maybe the Netflix series will have heard of it, but it, it occupies quite a place of honor in Italian society still to this day, 40 years later. Yeah, I think it is virtually impossible to overestimate the hold that the Orlandi case has on the the popular imagination in Italy. When ordinary Italians find out I am a Vatican correspondent, they don't ask the questions, you know, as, as a journal, you, you might think. Cab drivers or people in the grocery store, my barber, the, you know, they don't ask about the politics of the Catholic Church, whether the Pope is or is not going to do this or that. But ordinary Italians are obsessed uh, with this Orlandi case. That typically is the first thing they want to know about. What does the Vatican know? Uh, so what is the case? This is We're talking about a 15-year-old girl by the name of Emanuela Orlandi who disappeared in June 1983. Her father was a low-level official, a clerk in a Vatican office known as the prefecture of the papal household. These are the people who handle the Pope's daily schedule. So his job would have been things like organizing tickets for people who were going to go to papal audiences, making sure chairs were set up properly and things like that. Uh, The family had an apartment inside the Vatican, right next to the barracks of the Swiss Guard, actually. Uh, And so her disappearance automatically became a Vatican story because she came from a Vatican family. We have to remember the context. 1983 was five years after the election of the first non-Italian pope in 500 years, Pope John Paul II from Poland. It was in the middle of the rise of the Solidarity Movement uh, in Poland. The the Vatican was of enormous geopolitical interest. Uh, It was also a time of great political and social unrest in Italy. There was a lot of mob activity and mob killings that were going on at the time. And so over the years, uh, Orlandi's disappearance has been linked to all of these things. Some believe that she was abducted to try to pressure John Paul to dial down his hardline anti-communist stance, his support for solidarity. Those people would think the kidnapping was organized by, say, the KGB or somebody in the Soviet world. Others believe that this was a Roman mob operation, perhaps intended to pressure the Vatican to settle losses the mob had incurred as a result of the Vatican bank scandals. Still others think it was part of some kind of pedophile sex ring in the Vatican or with the connivance of some Vatican officials, uh, and on and on. This has been what the Italians would call their premier giallo. Uh, The word giallo in Italian means yellow. It refers to a, a mystery story because in the 50s, there was this famous line of mystery stories in Italy printed with yellow covers. Right. And uh, so this is the premier unresolved mystery in Italy. This is the Italian equivalent for Americans of who shot JFK. It it is remarkable because so few, even the time that I was there, didn't really know much about the case. You have a great story that you were in the hospital and your your bedmate, essentially, the person sitting in, in the bed beside you, took up the courage to ask you what really happened to her. It's that profound. The mystery is that profound still. Yes, that's right. I mean, she wasn't, she was a woman. She was not actually my roommate, but she was on the same ward uh, that I was on. 
Uh, and your episode, this is an ordinary, you know, Roman woman, mother of four children, no connection either personally or professionally to the Vatican. But nevertheless, when she learned what I do for a living, that is that I'm a journalist who covers the Vatican, she worked up her courage and asked me what I thought had happened to Emanuela. Uh, and that tells you something that you don't even have to use her last name. Everyone knows uh, who you're talking about. And, you know, I've tried to understand why the, there is this popular obsession uh, in Italy. I honestly, I don't think it is the geopolitics of it. You know, the, the, the dynamics of the Cold War, which were so fascinating in the 1980s, uh, you know, are obviously very different today. I, I don't think it's the mob connection. I, I don't really even think it's the idea of it being part of some kind of sex ring. Sadly, such stories have become very familiar to us. I think what it is, uh, Ben, uh, is that this is the story about a, a missing child in a culture where children are considered national treasures. And it's about the agony of a family, of, of a family that for 40 years has, has borne the pain of not only this child being gone, but having no idea what happened to her. And, and in Italy, family isn't just everything. It's the only thing, really. I, I mean, when you do these surveys uh, of most important institutions, uh, in Italy, the family outranks everything by an order of magnitude. Yeah, it's the fact that this is about a child and a suffering family. Uh, that ultimately gives up this pride of place uh, among Italian preoccupations. Right. And, and a child from from behind those walls, too. I mean, anyone who's ever been to Rome, she knows is the, in, the in Vatican. The yeah, the, the famous Netflix series. She was a it, Vatican girl. And that matters. And that that's that's a mysterious world to a lot of people who live even in and around it. Sure. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, unfortunately, children do go missing every day. I mean, uh, not just in Italy, but all around the world. But what makes the Orlandi case special, I think, is the mystique uh, afforded it by the fact that uh, there is this Vatican connection, even though we should make clear that her disappearance did not occur on Vatican grounds. Uh, it occurred uh, in Rome near the Piazza Navona outside a music school uh, that she attended. And it is entirely possible that it actually had absolutely nothing uh, to do with the Vatican. But I will tell you that that is a hard sell for the average Italian. I think the average Italian rightly or wrongly, is profoundly convinced that the Vatican knows far more than it has said uh, or revealed on this case. And I think that explains why there is so much popular pressure now for the Vatican to come clean. As you indicated, we are now in the 40th year uh, since Orlandi disappeared. During those 40 years, there have been numerous claims and counterclaims, purported bombshells that never quite seem to live up to their billing uh, in terms of you know new revelations, new people coming forward, uh, and so on. All of that has sort of crested with two things that, uh, that have sort of coincided. One is the Netflix series, this four-part series uh, called Vatican Girl, uh, which did quite well everywhere. But in Italy, it was a phenomenon. Uh, I mean, this was like roots back in the day in the United States. Right, I mean, right. it was the show uh, that all Italians were talking about for a month. That created new pressure on both the Vatican and the Italian government. And both the Vatican and the Italian government, that is the Italian parliament, have now announced the plans to open new investigations to try to finally get to the truth of what happened. So a lot of the theories, John, are, I mean, the theories are hard to kind of keep track of, but one of the big ones was was related to Muhammad Ali Aksha, who had attempted to assassinate the Pope a few years earlier. Yeah, that's right. So Ali Aksha had uh, attempted to kill John Paul II in St. Peter's Square on May 13th, 1981. 
Uh, subsequent to that, uh, had been imprisoned. Uh, he, of course, was a member of a far-right Turkish nationalist group called the, the Grey Wolves that, depending on who you want to listen to, either did or did not have links to the KGB and maybe to the Bulgarian Secret Service and so on. Uh, so, you know, I, I, let me put it this way, Ben. I think there are three broad sort of families of theories about Orlando and within which there's like a million variants in each right, family. Of course, yeah. These are very big families. So uh, the one would be geopolitics. Second would be the mob. Third would be sex. Under geopolitics, one version of this theory uh, is that basically John Paul was alarming people with his hardline anti-communist stance and uh, with the way that he was mobilizing the financial resources of the Catholic Church to try to move money to support the solidarity movement in Poland, which, of course, eventually became sort of the first domino that, that set the collapse of the Soviet empire in motion. And so the idea was that having failed to, to kill John Paul with Aliachka, the kidnapping of Emanuela Orlandi was plan B, and that it was somehow sponsored you know, by, out of the Soviet sphere. And as I say, there, there are lots of variants uh, of that theory. Of that one, uh, right. So the mob, there was a famous Italian mobster, a Roman mobster, uh, Enrico De Pedis. Uh, who was very active in the 1980s, he has been repeatedly linked in, in various rumors and reconstructions to the kidnapping of Emanuela Orlandi. In fact, a, a former girlfriend of De Pietis uh, a number of years ago, Sabrina Mignotti, came forward to claim that she had been asked by De Pietis to put Emanuela Orlandi in a car and then drive her to the top of the Janiculum Hill here in Rome and then hand her over to some Monsignor who showed up at this meet in a black cassock and in a black Mercedes sedan. So uh, another version of this theory is that there is mob involvement, that the mob either initiated uh, the kidnapping of Orlandi in order to, uh, some would say, uh, recoup its losses when a, a huge Italian bank that had been had a relationship with the Vatican Bank when it collapsed and a lot of the mob's money went with it. Uh, others believe the mob was just sort of a private contractor, that the kidnapping had been initiated by someone else and the mob had been paid basically to be part of it. So there's the mafia theory. Uh, and right. then finally, the, the theory that has gained ground in recent years as we have seen the child sexual abuse scandals uh, in the Catholic Church erupt uh, in so many parts of the world, of course, including in Canada, uh, is that Orlandi, remember, 15-year-old girl, had been kidnapped for some sort of nefarious sexual purpose by a band of pedophiles, uh, some of whom would have been Vatican people, some of whom perhaps not. It, there was a, a purported document that emerged uh, a few years ago, um, revealed by an Italian journalist, that claimed to be an internal Vatican report documenting money it had spent for gynecological care for uh, Emanuela Orlandi for a number of years uh, after her kidnapping. Now, most people think this document, you have to take it with a massive grain of salt, but nevertheless, uh, it illustrates this third family of theories. Did it come as a surprise to you that all of a sudden the Vatican, uh, the promoter of justice, uh, Alessandro Didi, then announced last month that, hey, you know, we're going to look into this again, because there's always been this theory that the Vatican knows a lot more than it's ever said. Well, at one level, I, I didn't find it particularly surprising. I mean, the, you know, there was the popularity uh, of the Netflix documentary. Also, 
Before the the Vatican announcement came, opposition parties in the Italian parliament had been proposing uh, that there be a an independent parliamentary uh, inquiry uh, into the Orlandi case. And it began to seem that the center-right majority uh, under Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney was going to be amenable uh, to that. So, it, you know, it, 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 there was this double whammy that the documentary had created a revived interest in the case. The parliament looked like it was going to do something. So, in a sense, it became inevitable uh, or irresistible that the Vatican had to do something. Uh, the, only, the only thing that surprised me about Didi being the one to make the announcement is that Alessandro Didi, who is now the promoter of justice, the top prosecutor for the Vatican, is at the moment uh, involved in what many people are calling the Vatican's trial of the century. This is the trial of 10 different defendants who have been accused of various forms of financial crime related right. to a $400 million land deal in London the Vatican was involved in, and including, for the first time, a cardinal of the Catholic Church is facing criminal trial. Uh, this is a big quagmire nightmare swamp uh, of a prosecution, and the idea that Didi has spare time <laughs> to be also resolving the Orlandi case uh, has struck some of us as just odd, but there we are. The thing one takes away from the Netflix series specifically is that without the advocacy of her older brother, her younger brother, rather, uh, Pietro, the, a lot of this, he's really much been the focus of a lot of the advocacy to keep the search for what happened going. He seems to have been a real linchpin in all this, and he continues to be. Yeah, so Pietro Orlandi has essentially devoted his life to the search for the truth about not only what happened to his own sister, uh, but other famous cases of disappearances. He's actually, he went on to become, well, to, to be the host of a TV series in Italy called The Disappeared that was a little bit like uh, America's Most Wanted in the sense that it, it became a kind of cultural phenomenon. It, you know, every year, Pietro Orlandi holds two public demonstrations uh, demanding the truth about his sister, one uh, in June and the anniversary of her disappearance and the other in January on her birthday. He he has been relentless. Also, the fam- the lawyer, Laura Segro, who has been uh, hired by the Orlandi family, is, an ex- is a very high profile uh, Italian attorney, uh, has a very sophisticated public relations operation. So, you know, between the two of them, they have done a masterful job uh, of just not letting people forget. That too, I think, added to the inevitability of the Vatican having to do something. I mean, that look, the bottom line is, you know, most Vatican officials I know believe that everything they know, they have already revealed that there simply is no smoking gun sitting in a Vatican archive someplace. And that may well be true for all I know. But what I can tell you uh, is that if you look at polling, huge majorities in the Italian public is convinced that the Vatican has not yet come clean. And that, whether it's true or not, that is a, a a perception problem that the Vatican needs to deal with. And, and we will see if this investigation does that. And certainly under Pope Francis, the whole notion has been a more, tra- the idea has been to create a more transparent Vatican. In this case, I suppose, within the Italian consciousness would be the the pinnacle example of how that transparency might work. I mean, it's meant different things in different countries. It's meant truth and reconciliation for to some extent in Canada. Uh, it's meant dealing with the sexual abuse scandals. But in Italy, this or this Emmanuel Orlandi case obviously is one of those that uh, still very much captures the imagination. And as you mentioned, um, impacts people's impression of the Vatican. Do you think it'll ever be solved? Well, look, uh, you know, I uh, 
I have learned from hard experience not to be overly dogmatic uh, about things like this. So I, I, you know, I, I don't want to speak in overly sweeping terms. But what I can say in the 25 years that I have been doing this business, we have lived through more cycles than I can count uh, of new investigations, alleged new evidence, alleged new revelations, and alleged new witnesses that finally uh, are going to cast light uh, on the shadows uh, of what happened to Emmanuel Orlandi. And every time, the, you know, the reality is that we're back where we started, that we're no clearer than often. Uh, we feel more confused uh, and less certain uh, than we did before all this began. I, I should also add that although Didi, the, the Vatican prosecutor, has told a news agency that he plans to open an investigation, we, to date, have no details uh, on how that investigation is going to work, what documentary evidence would be considered, what witnesses might be called, whether it is going to be handled as a legal matter uh, by the Vatican's promoter of justice office or some other uh, entity uh, in the Vatican, what the timeline is. We don't know any of those things. Uh, so in terms of how serious uh, this enterprise is going to be, and therefore, to answer your question, whether it ultimately uh, is going to answer the unanswered questions about Emmanuel or Orlandi, I would say uh, we don't yet know. Having spent some time covering stuff in Italy, and I know, you know you've been there for a quarter century, one thing that struck me is that it, it doesn't matter. I mean, right now, the truth, it's so murky now that even if they sort of, if the Pope himself stood on the, you know, on the balcony in St. Peter's and said, here's what happened, people would have their doubts. Oh, I think that's 100% true. I mean, you know, on the one hand, we say we don't know the truth. Uh, on the other hand, I think a substantial chunk uh, of the Italian population believes that it does know the truth. I think they believe that someone somewhere in the Vatican was in on this, knows what happened, but isn't talking. And you are absolutely right. I, I'm not sure what it would take to dislodge uh, that perception, but whatever it is, we certainly don't have it yet. And ultimately, I suppose this has always been about the disappearance of a young girl and the family that was left behind, regardless of where they lived. Yeah, that's right. And one of the unfortunate things, I think, Ben, uh, is that, uh, and I think this is very clear from watching that Netflix series, actually, that precisely because she was a Vatican girl, that is, there was this Vatican connection, immediately the investigation began, uh, was sort of seduced very quickly by conspiracy theories, by these sort of lofty, intrigue-laden geopolitical possibilities. It was never handled as a normal missing, missing persons case. And, uh, you know, one wonders that uh, if she had not been a Vatican girl, this were just an ordinary Roman girl who had disappeared. And there was no KGB to think about. And there was no Roman mob uh, to think about. And there were no clerical, you know, pedophile rings to speculate about. If instead this had just been an ordinary police investigation, you know, would would things have turned out differently? I mean, obviously, we will never know. But one hopes uh, that going forward, that finally, at long last, the speculative, the sort of Dan Brown uh, elements uh, of this story will take a backseat to the concrete shoe leather work, however prosaic the truth may turn out to be, of getting to that truth. John Allen, thank you so much. Thank you.